0: All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Fragile Juggernaut, our uh, limited run podcast on the CIO and the history of the American working class. When we left you, we had just finished a whirlwind tour of the history of the American working class from its beginnings through around 1913 or 1914. Uh, In today's episode, we're going to move you through not quite as much history, but still a lot, uh, starting with the beginning of World War I around 1914 and the gains that the working class made during the wartime period Uh, Then we'll talk a little bit about what happened after the war when there was a serious depression and a pretty intense uh, move against labor unions to try to roll back some of those gains. And then we'll spend a good deal of time talking about the 1920s, which were a kind of contradictory decade, an unbalanced decade, in which uh, workers never got up uh, to the kinds of power they had had in the past, uh, but where employers found themselves unable to totally roll back all of the gains or to establish a formula for hegemonic rule that didn't include workers. Um, and I'm joined here today by several of my colleagues. Um, I'll let them introduce themselves now. Hi, this is Andrew.
1: Hey, this is Gabe. Uh, Hey everybody, this is Ben.
0: And I'm Tim.
2: Fragile Druggernaut is brought to you by Haymarket Books, publisher of a wide range of essential books, especially relevant to listeners like you. One that you might be particularly interested in reading is Radicals in the Barrio, Magonistas, Socialists, Wobblies, and Communists in the Mexican-American Working Class by Justin Akers Chacon. In this groundbreaking book, scholar activist Justin Akers Chacon uncovers a long and rich history of political radicalism within the Mexican and Chicano working class in the United States. Chacon clearly and sympathetically documents the ways that migratory workers carried with them radical political ideologies new organizational models, and shared class experience as they cross the border into the southwestern barrios during the first three decades of the 20th century. In the process, he fills an important gap in our understanding of the organized left of the period, Mexican and Chicano history, and the development of the U.S. working class. Find Radicals in the Barrio at haymarketbooks.org, where all paperback books are 20% off every day.
3: Say, there, did you hear the news? Psycho worked at trimming shoes, vans was a peddling man, pushed a fish cart with his hand. Two good men a long time gone, two good men a long time gone, two good men a long time gone, left me here to sing this song. So let's get started. You know, we had left off with
0: a, a moment of mobilization around 1912, 1913 mobilization of some of these workers who were excluded from the AFL, uh, like the workers in McKees Rock, Pennsylvania, or in the Lower East Side of New York. It might have seemed like things were really coming to a head in terms of the class struggle in the U.S. uh, But then, a year later, the situation is transformed by the outbreak of war in Europe. So tell me a little bit about how the outbreak of war, uh, first with the U.S. involved economically but not militarily, and then after 1917 with the U.S. involved uh, as a combatant, How did that transform the history of the American working class and the the industrial working class in particular?
4: I think one starting place for that is to think about the relationship between organized labor and the Democratic Party. The AFL, as we talked about previously, had made it a general kind of point of policy to stand somewhat back from politics. There were exceptions to this. There were state affiliates that were very involved in politics, et cetera. It was not a blanket rule, but that was the general policy, a position often called voluntarism. And their general view was that the state had only repression to offer. However, Gompers, the head of the AFL, over the course of the progressive period, kind of gradually brought the federation into a relationship with the Democratic Party. And it's really in the Wilson administration that that relationship is consummated. Uh, And so I think, you know, the kind of nexus of state and class really begins to shift some in the years of the Wilson administration and uh, some of the details of that are very interesting and significant and kind of uh, both have huge effects and also foreshadow the experience of the 1940s in important ways.
1: Labor's entry into the Democratic Party machine and the kind of coalitions are represented didn't mean or signal a kind of nascent social democratic kind of labor movement, let alone a socialist one, uh, you know, the leading figures in the AFL still kind of hewed close to some of their kind of ideological, their at least recent ideological roots of voluntarism, meaning that they were opposed to many forms of social insurance, were not necessarily even thrilled about forms of many forms of explicit legislation, which might have curbed uh, labor loss abuses. They kind of narrowly confined themselves, as many historians will describe to Ensuring there were not many legal obstacles to the organization of workers at the point of production, of which there were many in this period.
2: The high point of the rhetoric of industrial democracy in the first half of the first Wilson term. Just to just to give a little bit of uh, domestic context to the energy that the Wilson administration will ultimately harness in its thrust into its military thrust into Europe before the election. During the Taft administration, there had been a, a kind of high point of labor violence. Some of the most famous examples, the bombing of the Los Angeles Times building by the structural ironworkers, a building trades union of riveters who put up steel bridges and, and skyscraper frames. They had been you know, engaged in hard bargaining with subsidiaries of the steel companies that installed the I-beams and structural steel and um had actually developed a kind of informal but later discovered policy of you know making i think it was $200 gifts to any local affiliate that ground down in bargaining which they would then use to hire what we would today call a a terrorist to plant dynamite on a construction site and and uh and one of the targets was the owner of the Los Angeles Times a famously anti-union publisher and a publisher who who stylized his life in Los Angeles as being on a kind of military frontier, you know, making war against the the local working population, and so news like that. Another another famous one is the um, Ludlow Massacre, um, a massacre of of uh, Southern and Eastern European uh, immigrant miners in southern Colorado by uh, an affiliate, uh, you know, a subsidiary of the of the Rockefeller interests. Uh, these events actually compel congress to form a kind of standing investiga- investigatory committee the commission on industrial relations which is impanelled during wilson's first term and opens uh, you know 2 years of national study on what is the ultimate root cause of this violent class conflict that keeps erupting in all these major uh, industrial and employment centers and you know that produces answers and 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 produces a kind of consensus around the Validity of the, of something called industrial democracy, uh, you know. One of the only legislative, national, federal legislative goals that the AFL has in this period is uh, amending the antitrust laws to exempt organized labor, because throughout the preceding decade, I mean, really going back to the eighteen not eighteen ninety to the passage of the Sherman Act, one tool that judges had used to break strikes was. The existence of the antitrust laws and referring to labor unions as labor monopolies, and so that exemption is included uh, in the Clayton Act, and is and is actually one. And so there's a there is a kind of moment here of uh, opening to organized labor and incipient
0: uh, movement energy. Woodrow Wilson is the only Democratic president between 1896 and the beginning of the New Deal in 1932. So in that way, too, this is an opening towards new social and political forces. Wilson is elected in 1912 in a complicated presidential election, which has uh, not only a Republican running against him, but Theodore Roosevelt running as a third party progressive candidate and Eugene Debs uh, running as a socialist. And so you've got a four way election in which three candidates stand for some version of progressive or socialist reform. Wilson, as a Democrat uh, and a Southerner, also speaks for a kind of international uh, political economy and orientation, which helps explain why he's later drawn into World War I. But initially, of course, he tries to resist U.S. entry. Uh, So maybe we can start thinking about the American worker in World War I by thinking about the period before U.S. uh, active military involvement, but when there was a really sharp economic consequence of the war. So uh, do you guys want to just sort of draw in broad strokes, what did the beginning of war in Europe in 1914 mean for the U.S. economy and for U.S. workers?
4: Well, it increased demand for labor very sharply, an effect that would begin before U.S. entry, although accelerate with U.S. entry. And that's because
0: the U.S. is now exporting a huge amount to Europe and immigration is uh, cut off and it's so there's less of a supply of labor.
4: Right. The latter effect, well, both of those effects, but especially the latter also are the economic trigger for the beginning of the Great Migration or the first great migration of African-Americans from the South, although that will continue on and off in some form through the 1960s. 1914 is the kind of classic start date for that, for this reason. Uh, It's also worth saying that the uptick in demand for labor and the consequent leverage that that brings about empowers not just unions in general, but the kind of left-wing crust of the AFL. For example, machinists in Bridgeport, I think in 1915 is the year of the big strike in Bridgeport although there will be industrial struggles in Bridgeport throughout the period of the war, because Bridgeport, Connecticut is a major arms manufacturing center. But, uh, you know, there are things like socialist machinists, right, who have real militant kind of traditions, often have local political power, are in the AFL, have kind of built up union bastions. And when demand for labor gets so high and the labor market so tight, there is a noticeable kind of increase in militancy in the first couple of years of the war before U.S. entry.
1: The number of strikes really soars in this period, between 1915 and 1916. I think trade union membership, it doubles also, right? Uh, Like literally doubles between 1916 and 1920. There ends up being over 5 million workers in a trade union by the end of the war, a few years after the war. These are not inactive or passive members of moribund institutions. If 4 million of these workers are on strike in 1919 alone, which gives you a kind of sense of the, the kind of ferment and activity that the movement was kind of riding off of.
0: We talked a lot in our uh, first episode about the distinction between craft and industrial principles of, of unionism. Uh, what's going on during the you know the World War One years with uh, the project of, of industrial unionization, or organizing you know all the workers in an industry or a sector rather than just the people who do one trade?
2: The hallmark success of the partnership between the AFL and the and the Wilson administration. Uh, before entry into the war is in the railroad brotherhoods, which do not formally amalgamate and pursue, you know, a kind of single contract in the way that the mine workers had, for example, but do coordinate a a national campaign aimed at the government rather than just the, the railroad owners uh, for the eight hour day. Which at this point is a campaign that's in its what fourth decade,
0: fifth decade? The demand for the eight-hour day. Our listeners will remember that the the campaign for the eight-hour day has its origins in the eighteen eighties. Um, so we're talking about something that's been going on at that point for for forty years.
2: Yeah, and and the leaders of the brotherhoods recognize this moment of high demand, and particularly uh, you know on the railroads to ship things to the ports to be transported to Europe they recognize the tremendous leverage this affords them to organize a strike campaign and to set a deadline for the Congress to say, if you don't legislate an eight-hour day in the railroads, we will shut the industry down. And amazingly, it works. And Congress passes the Adamson Act in 1916 and establishes the eight-hour day in the railroads. And this is a, a both of kind of vindication of the AFL's strategy to this point and, and an opening to People in craft unions that there are broader horizons than what they had uh, assumed was the you know the limit to what 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 they could do since since the defeat of the prior attempts at industrial unionism uh, in previous decades.
0: And Andrew, do you want to say a little bit about the United Mine Workers uh, in this period and and what they represented in terms of industrial unionism? I mean, the the Ludlow Massacre takes place after
2: three months or so of the of the governor refusing to intervene on the side of the companies. So you have all of these Polish, Russian, Italian miners in southern Colorado who strike to compel the the owner of this coal mine, which is a steel company, the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company, on the edges, on the western edge of the central competitive field, to compel that steel company to meet the wage scales of the union, which sets the wages, you know, for everything going into Pittsburgh And the steel-owned mines had been recalcitrant and refused to join, you know, basically the union-enforced cartel until this point. But there had been enough of the populist party, knights of labor legacy in the state, uh, enough political influence to where the state government actually refused to intervene for three months. And when the National Guard was sent in, it was sent in as a peacekeeping force to prevent the company from using private soldiers to break the strike and bring it, you know. And so you can you can tell there the use of the state to regulate the industry, uh, an insistence on political action, on using political allies, a goal of the workers to run the, you know, the the industry, you know, across state lines on on their terms. And the result, which is, you know, also telling about the balance of power in this period, is that uh, after three months, the governor the governor's resolve breaks he he bends to the 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 colorado fuel and iron company's lobbyists the rockefeller lobbyists directs the national guard to allow the strike breakers in who then set up machine gun outposts around the 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 camps of the evicted mine workers because every time there's a mine strike in, in this period you know you lose company housing and you have to set up a, a tent city usually near the the coal face so that you can guard the mine that you're striking and by the seventh month of of this strike on the morning of the orthodox easter when all of these workers have been celebrating uh, the night before these company guards open fire and ultimately there's 60 people are, are are massacred the mine workers uh union responds by organizing its own uh counter meeting there are uh, members of the western federation of miners wobblies radicals of all stripes who whose response is to go close the mines forcibly you know dynamite shut the mine faces to prevent to make sure that this massacre of their of their comrades does not become an opportunity to reopen the, the you know the struck mines and all of the correspondence about all of this you know the the letters from the Rockefeller Company, lobbyists to the governor and the people in the state house. it all comes out in the Commission on Industrial Relations that the U.S. Congress is is hosting and using to investigate the causes of industrial unrest. And so it comes out that, oh yeah, the state government is bought and sold. There's blood on on the owner's hands. And it becomes a kind of stain on the reputation of the progressive forces of of American capitalism, which the mine workers use to great effect But, you know, within the AFL saying, you know, you know, challenging union leaders who who sit on boards for philanthropic foundations, the the event of Ludlow itself becomes the uh, reason for the Rockefeller Foundation.
0: To come into, into existence and begin to fund all the social reform things that it continues to do for the next century and a, another exemplar of industrial unionism during this period uh is the clothing industry right uh, Does anyone want to speak a little bit about the the amalgamated clothing workers during this period?
4: We talked in the previous episode about how the clothing industry is divided in terms of its structure by, by uh, gender in terms of the product, right? Men's and women's clothing are different industries.
3: Many people can get confused. They think the Ladies' Garment Workers' Union is made up only of ladies. But the ladies means that they make ladies' garments. And men can make ladies' garments, and women can make ladies' garments. And for men's clothing, it's called the amalgamated clothing workers. So if you're, if you're on the inn, If you talk about the garment workers, everybody knows you're talking about the ladies' garment workers. If you're talking about the clothing workers, you're talking about men's clothing. If you mix it up, it shows you're not with it, you see.
4: The International Ladies' Garment Workers Union had sort of consolidated itself in the first decade of the 20th century, particularly 1909 to 1911. And the men's clothing industry remained somewhat more kind of fragmented on craft basis for a few years longer. So it's really only on the eve of the First World War that the Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America, which is the Men's Clothing Union, is consolidated under the leadership of Sidney Hillman, a Jewish immigrant from uh, Lithuania uh, who had been in the Jewish labor bund back in the Russian Empire, kind of came out of that Yiddish socialist tradition and had kind of fought and won a big struggle in Chicago in particular. So there's an interesting kind of distinction there for you know most of this industry is we think of it as a New York story. But uh Chicago, Baltimore becomes really important, uh other cities too. Anyway, the ACWA, the amalgamated as it's often called, is kind of just really getting on its feet when the war breaks out. And the war too will be very good to the ACWA.
2: The the clothing industry, you know, has a tremendous demand put on it by the by the military. I think one just, uh, important distinction about the org, the org, the founding of the acwa is that is that it's it's not recognized by the afl it's it's organized originally as a dual union at one of the conventions of the united garment workers which is an afl affiliate for 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 garment men's garments the you know it, it was it was a union that had relied a lot on the union label on kind of consumer organizing Uh, The union label was given to shops, which maybe only the cutters were organized, but, you know, the other three quarters of the workers were not union members. And so in in 1913, the president uh, of that union holds its convention in Nashville in the South, thinking that all of these immigrant workers from Chicago and New York might not be able to get there. Uh, doesn't allow those who come to to be in the convention, and uh, there's a dual. You know, they they go and form their own convention and, and and form the ACWA, and so it's not recognized. And that fact characterizes its politics in relation to the labor
1: movement for the next, you know, until the depression really. I would just jump in to say, you know, like there are the the kind of like garment workers and the miners are the two kind of main kind of traditional labor precincts for industrial unionism in this period, but they're not the only ones. I mean, the miners, they're, they're really worth mentioning. By the time the war's over, one out of 10 unionized mm-hmm. workers is in the UMW. They have a long legacy of industrial organizing. They have a kind of lean that comes from the kind of militant action that they're taking at the point of production. Uh, they have tremendous resources and have a lot of weight to kind of like throw around internal AFL L. Uh, debates, um, but they're not again the only ones. Even with the garment workers that are doing industrial organizing, there are rare precincts where this kind of other model of you know workplace organization is really prominent. One of which that's going to be of important to the story about the war is a number of the longshoremen and port workers. And in Philadelphia, you know, there's even a robust interracial IWW local, you know, headed up by figures like Ben Fletcher, who will kind of probably discuss at length a little bit more in the episode, a kind of black worker who had migrated himself from the kind of South up to Philadelphia and had kind of risen through the ranks of this militant interracial union as another kind of tradition, which had kind of survived that the wobblies, which we discussed at length in the last episode are still players in the labor movement.
0: And I think um, thinking about the Wobblies or the IWW uh, is a great prompt for us to think about the other side of the war experience, right? So on the one hand, uh, what the war means for the working class is high demand for labor, tight labor markets, leverage, right, new new members and unions. On the other hand, and especially after the U.S. enters the war in 1917, war is also um, an occasion for the extension of repression, especially by the state, Uh, Against certain kinds of labor organizing, right? So, what is what's sort of the darker side of the war boom uh, from the point of view of the American working class?
4: Well, there's outright repression, right? There's, uh, I mean, Eugene Debs, one of Wilson's competitors in the 1912 election, and a serious competitor in a way, right? He got six percent of the vote, is imprisoned, just as a kind of most one of the most famous examples for a speech that he gave in Canton, Ohio, opposing the war, and you know, similarly, um, the Wobblies in particular are pretty brutally assaulted by all levels of state authority from federal down to local and down to private kind of forms of power too. The Wobblies, uh, you know, I mean, they're still kind of in the mix until 1918, 1920, but they'll never really fully recover from this
1: blow. I mean, 166 of their members are tried for treasonous activity that has included huge bonds associated with their names. The organizations were really broken. And even someone like Ben Fletcher, who supports the American entry into World War One, is nevertheless, because of his association with the IWW, jailed for a number of years, along with the other leaders of Local 8 on the port, but also other kind of leading figures in, in the union. But I also want to add here, the relationship between state repression and
4: the elevated demand for labor is an interesting and complex one because wartime emergency, massive state public expenditure, high demand, you know, kind of running the economy hot and the way that you do in a war, right? It because it empowers workers, it creates a sort of very delicate situation for the people in charge of the state who both need production to continue and need to limit inflation if they can, right? And so, our kind of, draw, this happens in World War One. It happens in World War II. The state is drawn increasingly into the management of the economy uh, in a whole bunch of different ways that involve both empowering and repressing labor simultaneously. And to some extent, organized labor is a tool, or can become a tool for doing that, right? Because it gives you a counterparty to deal with in a certain way, right? This will be much more true in World War II than in World War One, though, because the workforce is not organized in the same way, and employers are not totally willing to let labor be a counterparty in the same way. So that limits the state's actual ability to manage the economy and creates a very kind of complex pattern of repression, co-optation, cooperation, and, all, and a bunch of different patterns. Most basically, once the U.S. is in the war, the Wilson administration is going to try to force employers to, uh, if not recognize unions outright, then to establish some form of employee representation, which is to say company unions become a common organizational kind of form in 1917, 1918, for the first time in US history. So a company union is, I mean, it can look at a few different ways, but the gist of it basically is that management establishes an organization to speak for workers at the firm with elections typically, right? So workers get to elect representatives to who, who management will sit down and talk to, but it, it doesn't have organizational independence from the company, right? It's sort of paid for in some form by the company. It's
0: like the student council or something, right? Yeah,
4: that's a good comparison, right? The company meddles in it in various ways. These are going to be very historically important going forward. They are one of the ideas that travels under the phrase industrial democracy, right? Industrial democracy is something that members of the IWW will say to describe their kind of anarcho-syndicalist program. It's something Eugene Debs will say to describe socialism. It's something that Samuel Gompers will say to describe AFL unionism. It's something that the Commission on Industrial Relations will say to describe what it's doing. And it's something that bosses will say to describe the institution of the company union and sort of related reforms that they take under wartime pressure.
0: To get back to the sort of the the state uh, and the, the labor movement, there's also kind of a, a cultural and ethnic moment to the process. Right. In addition to the outright, uh, you know, imprisonment of people or deportation and that uh, form of repression. What's going on, you know, in terms of this working class, which we've discussed, you know, again and again, uh, in terms of its composition, right? It's overwhelmingly children um, of immigrants and immigrants themselves. How how does that matter uh, once the United States gets involved in an international military conflict?
1: Yeah, as you say, Tim, the labor force, and particularly the high-profile leadership of the labor movement, is really driven by immigrants and their children. Even a figure as conservative as Samuel Gompers, he's a Dutch Jew who doesn't arrive in the U.S. until 1863. When geopolitical conflict with European imperial powers escalates in the course of the war, This invites a lot of scrutiny, harassment, and discrimination onto parts of the working class that hail from those countries in particular. Um, There's a generic wartime xenophobia that fuses with ruling class nativism that's been mainstreamed in response to the increasingly confident struggles waged by immigrant workers, particularly those from Southern and Eastern Europe. The war years, I guess the jumping ahead a bit, also the post-war years, are when the most restrictive immigration laws are passed in this country's history. 1917 sees the Asiatic Barred Zone Act, and then in 1924, the Immigration Act is passed. And with the latter, not only is Asian migration totally exc- like banned, migrants from southern and Eastern Europe also see severe restrictions. There's a quota system established. You know, as is often the case with border policies, it's not just how they want to control and regulate the flow of people inside a social formation. Nativism also wants to police more vigorously the hierarchies dividing immigrants from the rest of the population. And so at the same time that figurative walls are being projected outwards, they're also a blunt instrument turned inwards. These are the years when labor radicals like anarchist Emma Goldman is deported, so is Luigi Galliani, an Italian anarchist who has a huge following amongst his working class compatriots. Those include Sacco and Vanzetti, who later faced trumped up charges that kind of tragically result in their murder by electric chair. Uh, movement kind of insisting on their innocence is a, is a big part of working class and left wing radicalism of the decade. Um, These episodes should give a sense of the atmosphere that these strikes were facing. Tenuous efforts at multinational and multiracial unity that kind of faced off against a border regime, an environment of sometimes popular nativism that wanted to exclude, but also divide and hierarchically structure the working class, or at least parts of the working class. And of course, these anti-immigrant attacks were the bleeding edge of a kind of backdrop of intensive labor repression. You know, think about the anti-sedition laws of World War One, or how in Chicago and New York and Los Angeles, police forces developed specialized parts of their departments known as red squads that had the explicit aim of rooting out anarchists, communists and unionists. So a big part of the story of these strikes and the sort of intensified and professionalized repression from above that are kind of created in the wake of them um, and continue to exercise influence over this country's politics for quite a long time to come.
4: There's also a massive program, I, I said ideological program, rolled out of Americanism uh, and Americanization. Again, this is kind of in that complex fabric of repression, co-optation. Uh, it doesn't all quite work in one way, but you know, basically across the urban industrial landscape of the country, the demand to demonstrate your 100% Americanness you know, he's sort of voiced in many, many ways in many places, you know, English classes and factories, you know, abandonment of uh, maybe older cultural practices, foodways, whatever. I mean, it's, it's quite far reaching, in fact. Right. And a, a visible performance of foreignness, especially, uh, you know, if it's connected to one of the central powers, you know, which lots of people are from, like the Austro-Hungarian Empire, for example. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, becomes increasingly stigmatized and then that will extend to much of Eastern Europe after the Russian Revolution as well, since the Russian Empire had included so much of what's now Poland and Ukraine and so on. And uh, so there's kind of repressive assimilation dynamic. There's also something that the historian James Barrett describes as Americanization from below. And that's a way in which, again, in the kind of many meanings of industrial democracy, workers appropriate American citizenship ideologically as kind of their possession against their bosses and try to kind of argue that, you know, here as America, you know, we, we come from the land of the Kaiser, right? We come from the land of the emperor uh, where, you know, we were oppressed peasants, but here as Americans, we have a kind of citizenship and, you know, our boss is actually the Kaiser here. So it doesn't all work in one way, but it is a kind of notable and important moment of, you know, I mean, to be direct about it, I think like the politics of whiteness, right? And the kind of question of the place in American society of the ethnic groups that, again, Barrett, along with David Roediger, describes as the in-between people, right? That Eastern Europeans, Southern Europeans, everyone knows they're white and European in a certain sense and can differentiate them from, you know, Africans and African-American people from East Asians and so on. But exactly what it means to include them in that category is still kind of politically contested and up for grabs and this is an important moment although the process will continue for decades more in the consolidation into kind of white americanness of poles and italians and jews and so forth
0: and this this cultural um you know logic has a, a kind of direct material element as well in the idea of an american standard of living right uh in the late 19th century, when uh, white American workers' movements are resisting uh, immigration from China, they distinguish between you know a higher American standard of living that a white man is entitled to, and the kind of you know bowl of rice that a, an Oriental can live on. And so, in the process of becoming white or more uh, less ambiguously white, ethnic American workers are also laying claim to this kind of higher standard of living that the sort of skilled workers represented by the AFL have traditionally been able to at least claim, if they don't always receive it. Is is it
2: right to say that these ideological reformations are also being compressed into a tremendously short period of time? Given that you know the election is November nineteen sixteen, the inauguration will be March nineteen seventeen. American entry into the war not long after that, and then the Russian Revolution, you know September nineteen seventeen. You know it's what six months or so of a, of a of a tremendous new choice being
0: presented to labor leaders and and to workers. Absolutely. So, you know, um we we mentioned the Russian Revolution in nineteen seventeen a few times. Um, you know, it probably won't be a spoiler to anyone listening to this that World War I ends, the fighting ends in nineteen eighteen and there's an armistice signed. what What happens sort of in the u s uh, as all these things come together? the the ending of the war, the cresting of the the wartime economic boom and inflation, a revolutionary wave that we should remember doesn't just include Russia, but it uh, happens really in some way all over the world. What's, what's sort of the high tide of this look like, and, and how does it start to um,
1: move towards the, the post-World War I period? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, as the wars, it's, there's a huge uptick in kind of militancy as the war comes home. And as people, even as the kind of like labor market loosens a bit, people's expectations for life after the war are also kind of rising. And there's some new efforts to kind of kickstart industrial organization and in some of these kind of industries that were so key to the war. I mean, the Chicago Stockyards is maybe the, one of the most successful and important campaigns of these kind of late war, post-war kind of like years. You know, William Z. E. Foster, who we've discussed earlier he is a future leader of the communist party but at the time is a kind of rising star in the labor movement, spent some time amongst the Socialist Party and amongst the IWW. He has connections to syndicalists all over Europe. And in this moment, he's really kind of testing out his ability to bring and draw the AFL into experiments with industrial kind of organization. And the Chicago Stockyards are one of the most important sites for him to do so. He kind of looks across this industrial workforce, which is still largely comprised of recent immigrant workers uh, on Scaled workers. And he tries to find a way to kind of reach them. And despite even the pressures of Americanization, he Makes the kind of deaf move to hire a number of foreign language organizers rooted in living in the kind of immigrant communities around Chicago's South Side. Uh, and these are Polish workers, these are uh, Slavic workers. Um, and, you know, as Foster kind of put it, union became a household word within some time. I think 10,000 Polish and Lithuanian workers joined within a month of the kind of campaign starting. By the end of the war, there are 20,000 Slavic immigrants in its ranks. There was one big problem, though, and it was related to what Gabe kind of signaled earlier, that's Foster's phrase, one big problem. And that was the unique position of Black workers that were kind of migrating, again, in record numbers from the Black Belt South into the arms of Northern industry to help kind of meet the demand that the kind of wartime industries had. They were taking refuge from these kind of survivals of the plantation economy, uh, what Black communist Harry Haywood called the curious anomaly of virtual serfdom in the very heart of the most highly industrialized economy of the world. You know, they were running from clan terror, from Jim Crow, from Lynch law. Uh, that basically allowed the kind of former slaveholders of the South to kind of maintain some vestige of old slave relations under kind of new conditions of legal emancipation. Black workers, they comprised quite a large part of the workforce during the war. One out of four workers in the stockyards by 1917 were these Black workers who had recently migrated north. It's worth remembering, too, this is the nadir of race relations in this country. In other words, it was a time when open white supremacy and the quite popular violent subordination of Black people, fixing them at the kind of bottom rungs of the U.S. class and racial hierarchy, was kind of like a core part of our political culture. Woodrow
0: Wilson is an exemplar of that himself personally, right?
1: Right, exactly. I mean, Wilson, despite being the kind of the kind of ultimate professor president, you know, is also the one who brings, you know, has ties to the Klan and brings a birth of a nation and screens birth of a nation at the White House. And you know, these black workers that are arriving from the South, they have their own traditions of organizing. They have their own kind of political traditions and radicalism. But there are a few resources in the extant labor movement to kind of meet them in solidarity. Uh, and many black leaders, community leaders, fraternal groups, they, they were ultimately anti-union. Um, even the European immigrant workers, when they were not racist, were kind of responding to a situation where Black workers were being railroaded from the South by bosses, often to kind of break strikes, where scabbing was a quick ticket out of the kind of white vice of debt peonage. You know, Foster again hired Black organizers, he found ways to connect with Black workers, however, tentatively. These are Black workers also locked into the worst, most abject parts of the labor process. You know, race wasn't just a matter of like you had a diverse spectrum of people working in the plant. It was often kind of there was a racial logic to the organization of production in the plant. And Black workers, in particular in the stockyards, were often kind of trapped on the killing floor where one actually had to kill the kind of livestock that you know, would supply the kind of raw materials, the food that the stockyard was was aiming to produce. It's a really strategic position, right? It's where the production process starts in a way, but it's hardly an enviable one to kind of spend all your time in. Unlike the situation in steel, the Chicago stockyards do succeed in
2: bringing in this radical left-wing organizing force into under, under the auspices of the FFL and organizing an industrial organization.
1: Yeah, and they go on the offensive even as the kind of like warriors are kind of drawing to a close and they pull off what is an ambitious kind of strike action that requires the intercession of the federal government. I think it's the federal government, like into the kind of strike itself. And an arbitrator ultimately awards them both recognition of the union, pay increases, and the rest. And it's a kind of victory that no one really kind of expected. It also becomes the
4: kind of signal and model for a wider labor offensive in 1919 so uh a lot happens in 1919 and we need to spend a couple minutes on it because it's just you know it's one of those years in american history um right the russian revolution has turned into the russian civil war right and is reverberating around the world uh huge strike waves In other countries have followed from it, notably Italy, for example, right? Where there were huge factory takeovers by workers that kind of brought them to the brink of revolution.
1: Yeah, and Bavaria too, in Austria, Hungary. I mean, these are not, you know, these are not also just foreign, these aren't like distant events. These are events that many of the kind of mass production workers we're talking about have family, personal, political ties to.
4: And so in this context, I think it's helpful to kind of just remind ourselves, right, that we're kind of looking back through a membrane of the Cold War, and I have to see past and through that, right, to a period when an AFL organizer like Foster might also be, you know, a a wobbly and a syndicalist and a future communist, right, and that all of those things are kind of circulating a little bit more promiscuously with each other than would be true in the later, more familiar labor movement. So uh, on the model, basically, of, of Chicago and the stockyards, there is a major offensive by labor Really beginning in 1918, in fact, uh, but but really reaching a peak in 1919 remains the year when most the most Americans proportionally have been on strike in our whole history. And there are enormous strikes in essentially every major industry, but uh, that includes a general strike in Seattle, which begins from the shipyards in Seattle. So there's a notable kind of war industry, right? That's grown the city, grown its working class. The offensive of that working class in 1919 brings the whole city out on strike for a period of time. It's a big mine strike, which we need to talk about on its own.
2: Yeah, let's talk about the 1919 coal strike. It saw the federal government confront over 400,000 striking coal miners in over a dozen states and the emergence into national politics of a young John L. Lewis, who would later be instrumental in the organization of the CIO. The background of the strike was the wartime inflation and the fact that the mine workers contract had been frozen for two years. When Wilson brought the country into war, the Congress had passed price control legislation establishing a federal fuel board to regulate the industry. And under a Washington agreement, the union negotiated with the operators under the fuel board. There had been a substantial wage increase in the summer of 1917 and union security, meaning that coal miners could not be fired for being members of the union, a blacklisting tactic that was very common in the industry, particularly in the South and the West. But the union also gave up the right to strike for the duration of the agreement and allowed striking workers to be fined up to a dollar a day. Importantly, the terms of the agreement would last until either the end of the war or April 1st, 1920, whichever came first. So while they had won a wage increase at the beginning of the war, the war had gone on for two years and prices had continued to rise. While the armistice had been signed in November of 1918, the Senate had failed to ratify the terms of the Treaty of Versailles. So from the perspective of the coal operators and the federal government, the Washington agreement remained in force and the union was prohibited from striking. This was the context in which John L. Lewis emerged as the acting president of the UMWA. Lewis had been born in 1880 in a small Iowa coal town, the son of Welsh immigrants, on Lincoln's birthday, the eldest of eight children. He had worked as an itinerant coal miner in his early 20s before returning to Iowa to work with his family, where he campaigned for fellow Iowan coal miner John White for the UMWA presidency. And upon White's victory, the AFL appointed Lewis to its staff, where he would work for Gompers, campaigning for Woodrow Wilson in 1912, and returning to work for White, organizing coal miners in the South and the Southwest. White, in turn, gave Lewis a job in 1916. In April 1917, Woodrow Wilson brought the country into war, appointed White as a member of the Federal Fuel Board, which made his vice president, Frank Hayes, president of the union. Hayes, in turn, appointed Lewis his vice president and incapacitated by alcoholism, receded from active leadership. So by the end of 1918, without ever having won election to union office, John L. Lewis was effectively in charge of the mine workers. As soon as the armistice was signed on November 11th, 1918, strikes immediately began. Uh, the Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America launched a strike that day for the 44-hour week. In February, the Seattle workers kicked off their general strike, And in August, a group of dissident mine workers from over 150 locals held their own bargaining convention to hold their own strike. In September, the UMWA leadership held its own convention, overseen by Lewis, uh, to authorize uh, a strike on November 1. Their contract demands were a 60% raise, a six-hour day at the face, meaning they would be paid as soon as they entered the mine rather than uh, when they got to the bottom of the mine, and a five-day week and abolition of the dollar a day penalty for striking workers. Negotiations began later that month, but went nowhere as the operators refused to negotiate under a strike threat. Lewis's statements in these negotiations showed something of his caustic public persona, his penchant for sarcasm and his deft use of the press to dramatize the class conflict in the industry. He said, quote, during this crisis from out of Macedonia comes the cry. We gentlemen stand here with spotless robes and white mantles and are ready to negotiate a wage scale, except as affects our minds. In late October, the Wilson administration invited Lewis and the operators to Washington, but the negotiations produced nothing. The bedridden president, Woodrow Wilson, issued a statement that the strike would be, quote, not only unjustifiable, but unlawful, end quote. When a reporter read the statement to Lewis, he responded by challenging the president's own patriotism, saying, quote, I am an American, free-born, with all the pride of my heritage. I love my country with its institutions and traditions. With Abraham Lincoln, I thank God that we have a country where men may strike. May the power of my government never be used to throttle and crush the efforts of the toilers to improve their material welfare and elevate the standards of their civilization, End quote. The day before the strike deadline, Attorney General Mitchell Palmer went to court to get an injunction against the strike and won a temporary restraining order against the union and a hearing date on November 8th. On November 1, the strike began. Coal production throughout the entire country ceased for a week and at the injunction hearing, the judge gave the union three days until November 11th, 1919 to call off the strike. Lewis ultimately capitulated, announced the end of the strike But in a sign of the union's strength, the miners refused to return to work without a clear victory. Martial law had to be declared in the state of Wyoming, and in early December, the federal judge handling the case cited 84 UMWA officers for contempt of court and placed all union staff in the state of Indiana, where the union's headquarters was in, in Indianapolis, under arrest. President Wilson again invited Lewis and William Green to Washington and promised arbitration if Lewis could bring the miners back to work. On December 11th, 40 days after the strike began and 33 days after the union's own leaders had, under threat of imprisonment, called it off, Lewis announced the union would hold an international convention to give delegates the opportunity to vote on the settlement in January. Coal production, which had gradually crept back to 50% of its levels before the strike, resumed. Quote, we have felt the weight of our burden, Lewis told the convention. Quote, we have... Paced the floor at night into the wee small hours of the morning "'when the men and women of our organizations "'were peacefully sleeping in their beds, wondering what we could do. "'We were insulted in conference. "'We were insulted in the streets. "'We were insulted on trains and in hotels. "'Ye gods! "'Such concentrated fury was never visited "'upon any helpless set of men in such an unjustifiable way.'" Quote. The convention voted to approve President Wilson's settlement terms, And in February 1920, the mediation commission established under the agreement awarded a further wage increase. But
4: kind of the sort of signal event of the year, and in a way, the the one that indicates some of the limits of this moment is, I think, we would probably agree in steel. And it's also led by Foster, right? It's sort of like, okay, you figured it out with, with with meatpacking, go take on the big one now, which is steel. Steel is seen at this point as the most important American industry, and so they, you know, Foster and his committee begin process to uh you know lay the groundwork for a massive recognition strike in the steel industry uh, and steel has had many kinds of the you know the wartime sorts of um, accommodations that have been common in lots of industries through the war right uh forms of employee representation, arbitration by the federal government leading to pay increases and so on so there's a reason to think this might work they do manage to get hundreds of thousands of steel workers, Out on strike, basically in the region between Chicago and the West, and uh, you know, running through Gary, Indiana, across to Pittsburgh, uh, and then over to Eastern Pennsylvania, around Bethlehem, and down to Baltimore. Uh, Right, that's the kind of Steel Belt. Hundreds of thousands of workers go out on strike, and what's really notable about this is, in particular, the semi-skilled and unskilled Southern and Eastern European immigrant workers are the kind of main cohort of this strike, uh, to the point that, in fact, people refer to it and still today remember it, if they do, as the hunky strike, hunky being a then slur, now kind of affectionate term for, uh, it comes from Hungarian, right? It's a term for Eastern Europeans, probably related to honky, by the way, which gets to the interesting dynamic of whiteness and race in this moment. And this is notable because... You know, since the nineteenth century, since Homestead, efforts to organize and steal have largely been led by the shrinking kind of vanguard of skilled workers and their craft unions. And this is a kind of you can see a glimmer of industrial organization, right? In this mass movement of the semi-skilled, the immigrant workers, uh, who are basically betrayed by the skilled workers. And that's more or less how the strike is defeated in a context of quite significant violence. And you get a sense of that in a famous image. A poster telling workers to go back to work, which is written in let me see how many languages, uh, seven languages I think. This is a famous image of, of this year. Uh, you see Uncle Sam, giant Uncle Sam, standing over a steel mill, and the poster says the strike has failed. Go back to work, and then it says go back to work in what looks like Russian, Italian, Polish, Czech, and a bunch of other Eastern European languages. I couldn't I couldn't tell you what they are. So this is, you know, a moment of seeming huge opportunity, right? This is the most important industry. You have the main group of workers who they've never been able to organize, actually organized, and then it comes crashing down.
1: I mean, crashing down, I mean, Gabe, you hinted at, I think, a lot of these points, just the severe repression that workers faced. I think many workers were evicted from their kind of homes in the course of the strike. Their homes were searched, looking around for any kind of secret red influence in the kind of years following the October Revolution. I know Foster was also frustrated by the lack of resources that he felt he was getting from the AFL to actually actively organize people, that there was also highly kind of bureaucratized and factionalized series of reports different kind of organizers had to give to their own chain of command, that he felt it quite difficult to kind of exercise more central coordination in the course of the strike that he was able to otherwise put into effect in the case of Chicago. You know, ultimately, there's also a breakdown as the kind of strike we're on about the process of ethnic and racial integration, which was so important to the kind of movement in the war years of workers from different immigrant backgrounds, native-born workers, both white and Black, um, kind of joining common organizations. That kind of poster that you described is, again, a signal of the kind of polyglot, multitudinous kind of mass industry working class that that was being mobilized by the union, but also it was demobilized by the employers. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it signals something about the the difficulty, the promise, and what ultimately is the kind of tragedy of how some of these, this moment ends.
4: Right. In a way, you could see the steel strike as an attempt to organize workers industrially without actually having an industrial organization. Right. And the AFL's plan, if this if succeeds, and these 350,000 striking workers beat the steel industry is to then parcel them out, right, across oh, I don't even know, probably 10, 12 different organizations across the steel industry.
0: So the, the collapse of the steel strike is followed um, shortly by a very sharp um, recession or even depression, as, as people would have said at the time, uh, beginning in the, the early part of 1920. I have here that manufacturing production declined by 22 percent, uh, unemployment nearly doubled, uh, reaching 11.3 percent. And so you also have the disappearance um, of some of that leverage the workers has had in the labor market. And so that sets up one of the conventional narratives of the 1920s, which is that these are the lean years, you know, which kind of stand in sharp contrast to the victories of um, both the 1910s and the 1930s, labor's really on its back. Um, and certainly thinking about steel or auto, you know, which remain uh, largely union-free throughout the next decade, we can see that. Does anyone want to speak to this, this image of the 1920s as an era of defeat and whether it's, it's you know, an adequate frame for, for thinking about that history?
4: I mean, there's something undeniable about the about the framework of defeat. I think I think it's not quite too, as simple as that, but I think it's important to begin with that recognition, right? Uh, even the accomplishments of the war years, like what happened to Chicago, that falls apart, right? And that's the other side of what happens in 1919, right? It's an enormous upsurge in racial violence against uh, black migrants in cities across the country, often called The red summer of 1919, the Chicago uh, race riot being one of many extremely violent examples. Hundreds and hundreds of people are murdered. And, you know, the steel strike is defeated. The miners fight and basically lose the mine war, right? Again, the most significant kind of armed insurrection of labor ever arguably in this country, right? That's 1920 to 21.
1: Yeah, the Battle of Blair Mountain, right.
4: And, you know, the sum result of these defeated struggles and the enormous political repression of the left, uh, right, which rolls into the Red Scare of these years with, you know, huge deportations um, and arrests and so on, right, is there is clearly a certain amount of defeat, demobilization, intimidation, disorganization. That's just undeniable, even as you will continue to see struggles flaring up into 21, 22, 23, in rail, on the docks, et cetera. That being said, from 1914 to 1920, workers' wages have gone up 158%. Uh, Although, you know, the recession, I think, drives them back down some, certainly. Uh, There is an irreversible quality to a change that dramatic. Uh, Right. Workers have also had these experiences of maybe their union had a a moment of of recognition during the war, or they at least were in a company union and their boss said the words industrial democracy. Right. Um, And so, uh, you know, at the the kind of beginning of this decade, it's not actually possible for capital to reinstitute the status quo ante. It just it sort of can't be done, especially in a global context of working class revolution. Right. Which. They're not totally sure won't come to America. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the way to think about the 20s from my perspective, right? Uh, certainly, it begins with huge working class offensive that kind of comes to defeat and ruin quite bloodily. But nonetheless, something has kind of been conquered over these years by the working class that will never totally be wrested back
0: what what are employers sort of doing at this point what what is their vision of uh, industrial relations obviously we've talked um, about the intense repression you know about the suspicion of of immigrant workers and about some of their new investments in in labor displacing technology um but what are some of the other ways that employers are starting to think about the future of industrial relations in the 20s
4: yeah well i mean employers largely are able to kind of recognize that they have a problem Not just in that they're paying more wages than they would like to be, but that there is a kind of a class problem that they're able to kind of see. And that's part of their recognition that they can't just jack wages back down to where they were. So, you know, the experience of the war really kind of teaches a certain lesson that uh, it's possible to engage in experimentation and how bosses relate to workers without necessarily giving up the whole shop. So company unions, for example, just persist mainly. They get set up during the war. All the big industrial firms, more or less, they just kind of persist across the 20s. And in in fact, in many cases, kind of deepen in terms of, you know, uh, participation and, and, and so on. And, you know, this develops a whole kind of bureaucracy for the first time in a lot of firms about trying to kind of rationalize employment to personnel departments. I mean, they, those, some of those are, you know, pre-war, but the personnel department kind of really comes into its own in the 1920s, right? The idea that, that the company would have a significant staff of people whose job is the kind of bureaucratic side of management. So not like on the shop floor barking at workers, although that certainly is still there too, right? But like in, in the office. Kind of like fiddling with wage rates and policies uh, and keeping track of the file you know, with a file on every worker. Uh, and that allows you to do things like, for example, establish what we call an internal labor market. An internal labor market being a policy of assigning job openings to current employees w- where possible, uh, often on the basis of seniority. So seniority, which is a union demand, right? And that's rightly how we think of it, is also something that employers become kind of interested in and willing to experiment with. They start providing some amount of welfare policies uh, kind of on their own initiative in some way through this period. Um, Life insurance plans, for example, um, which maybe they just, in some cases, workers uh, have to kind of pay the whole premium, but it's sort of pooled through the agency of the employer and maybe the employer kicks in a little money. Medical care becomes a possibility, often just like the company itself just gives you the care directly without the mediation of an insurance plan pensions become a kind of known possibility in some industries like rail and steel and so on. Again, often in discretionary ways, right? So like if you have a long service record and can demonstrate your loyalty or something like that, right? Uh, They'll they'll kind of think about giving you a pension as opposed to an entitlement like a contract would give you. But nonetheless, right, these become more common features of industrial life. And there's also a whole kind of like leisure and recreation side to it, you know, company baseball teams, company outings and picnics, company orchestras, et cetera.
1: The original anti-union
4: pizza party, in other words. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, this is in a moment where employers are trying to figure out how to deal with the huge increase in wages and militancy over the course of the war and kind of get that under control without totally rolling it back, right? So there's a kind of structure of exploring for compromise here, where capital wants to find things that it can give labor, that labor will accept and appreciate, that won't fundamentally kind of change the power relationship. I think that's at the center of the dynamic over the course of the 20s. It's also worth saying, we've now alluded a couple times to mechanization, but this is the decade of the assembly line really i mean it it's been invented already you know the concept is not new but the 20s is really the period when that becomes a very kind of common feature in one form or another like mass production in other words it was sort of rolled out across the industrial economy and you know it's not just an idea like productivity in manufacturing increases very noticeably in the 1920s and that too is a kind of you can think of as a kind of having a logic of compromise right because that's sort of like well maybe we won't have to drive your wages down so much if we can increase your productivity, right That's a kind of classic capitalist strategy.
2: Not to put too fine a point on it, but what we're talking about here is the invention of the HR department
0: right. And also the the in, you know if not the invention the the spread of an idea that workers might trade off um, control and power in the workplace in exchange for consumption during their leisure hours, right. Um, because, you know, even though it sounds, you know, to many people today, like very far and utopian, um, up through this, you know, 1910s, World War One era upsurge and to some degree into the 20s, what workers meant when they talked about industrial democracy was really some form of um, worker power in the factory, right, or, or in the workplace. Um, and it's really with this wave of mechanization that that idea
1: um, starts to lose ground, uh, even in some precincts of the labor movement itself. Irving Bernstein, who's the historian of the book, The Lean Years, uh, I think he describes it as like a kind of social climate, ultimately hostile to the delicate plant that is unionism. And I think by that he means both the kind of new rising standards of living, the new kind of opportunities for social mobility, certain sections of the immigrant working class are starting to experience, uh, but also the kind of atmosphere, both of individualism, but also of um, kind of suspicion of different racial and ethnic groups. We dropped from over 5 million kind of workers in 1920 by 23, 1.5 million of those workers are already gone. And it hits particularly hard, the kind of industrial sector, the mine workers, the garment workers, it hits like mine mill in particular, I think like dissolves, like within the first couple of years of the 1920s, uh, who's an inheritor of the Western mine workers we've talked about in earlier episodes. Uh, so the kind of like old tribunes of an alternative model of unionism are the ones which find themselves the most on the back foot.
4: And it begins to change the composition of the working class in a really important way. I mean, this is a kind of secular gradual process been going on long before this, but there is a noticeable acceleration in the 1920s in the growth of what we call semi-skilled operatives. So if you think about a factory, like a steel mill, for example... Uh, there are the skilled craftsmen, that's like electricians and uh, boilermakers, people who might otherwise have a job in the building trades, uh, right? They had to apprentice for those jobs. And that's um, a significant part of the workforce, but it's a shrinking minority uh, and will be down by the middle of the 20th century to uh, maybe 20%, 20 to 30% of a steel mill. There's unskilled workers, and that's people who are like shoveling coal um right, job's like that where you can basically walk in off the street and start doing it but the semi-skilled group the machine operators right are people who don't have to go through an apprenticeship process but you know there there is some kind of technical dimension to the job that they have
2: to be trained
4: you have to be trained right or a couple of weeks even or something like that right i mean uh, an apprenticeship to be a welder is going to be months or years to be trained to be a semi-skilled machine operator might be days or weeks but it, it you know there's something there and this maps right onto a higher a racial ethnic hierarchy that we've been talking about throughout the show, right? Which is like the top group, the craftsmen, are all white uh, and typically native-born, maybe Irish, uh, maybe Italian occasionally, the, late, in, at the further forward we go in time. The middle group, the semi-skilled operators, are the Southern and Eastern European immigrants, right? That's sort of where, where they, they are clustered. And the bottom group... Also include some of the Southern and Eastern European immigrants, but also that will be almost exclusively where black workers find work in industry. And so the the middle group, the semi-skilled operatives, grow quite significantly as the factory is mechanized in the 1920s, right? Because they are the people who work those machines
1: you know, this this kind of like really changes the internal structure of the workforce as you have increasingly unskilled and semi-skilled kind of workers taking up increasingly important kind of roles in the kind of production process. It also leads to a diminution of a certain horizon, at least for a time, of a certain horizon of what unionism means and what shop floor struggles aspirations necessarily are. It was the highly skilled workers uh, that historically were the kind of main tribunes for the kind of calls for running production. The main kind of calls for self-management. That's because they really identified with the kind of production process. They had a kind of like front to back, soup to nuts kind of understanding of it. Managers didn't understand what that process was. Uh, we talked about this again when we were introducing craft unions last time. A relatively de-skilled worker without roots, who's more mobile, is feels interchangeable in relation to the production process, maybe kind of flits in and out of other industries, again, is going to have a different ambition maybe for what, what he wants to get out of a job.
4: And this is also a period, the first half of the decade, of extremely high turnover that's connected to the high demand for labor coming out of the war, but it persists into the mid-1920s. And in fact, for many employers, this whole suite of reforms that we've been talking about, they distantly understand that it's a way of sort of dealing with the class problem and seeing off any challenge. But the immediate form that that takes is, is the problem of turnover. Like they are worried that they are hiring what they will often call floaters, who don't stick around, and that creates kind of turbulence on the shop. It costs a lot of money to train new people. They've, you know, these often over 100 percent turnover rates uh, year over year.
1: I mean, if you're if you've tried to organize a service worker shop in the course of the pandemic and the tighter labor market, you'll you'll recognize this problem. How many of your coworkers thought, okay, I'm probably just going to leave this job. Why why stick it out and fight? Yeah. Um, so
4: management is interested in stabilizing the workforce and to the extent that they are going to be, they succeed in doing so, they're going to create a situation where workers might be organized, although that's not their intent. And in fact, what they think that they're doing is getting rid of like IWW type, you know, marginal deviant radicals who kind of float from job to job and, you know, aren't reliable family men and don't own a home and so on. So the question of what it means to have a stable job. Is really important here, actually, and is kind of flipping in a certain way in what in its political significance over the course of the 1920s.
0: Should we talk a little bit about um, you know signs of trouble, signs of discontent, you know, and maybe what's happening on on the farther left uh, reaches of of the class? I think there's one one area
2: of labor culture that uh, will become uh, directly. Instrumental to the organization of the CIO in, in this period, which is workers' education. This is uh you know an inheritance of the progressive era, um, you know, an idea of, of individual uplift, but also, you know, a kind of political education, depending on exactly which schools we're talking about. But there is a a, a brief flourishing of you know worker schools, uh, and the uh American Federation of Labor does organize a, you know, workers' education bureau to oversee this work. And there's all the, all of this philanthropic foundation money pours into it because you have this first uh, era of American fortunes that are accumulated out of the out of the Gilded Age. Suddenly, you know, they have to be spent on something. And so uh, two particular schools that do become deeply influential, through, you know, in, in American history are the Highlander Folk School, which is in the South. Um, in Tennessee, and in the north, uh, Brookwood Labor College uh, in upstate New York. And these these are places where, you know, the salary of the faculty are funded by local union contributions. You know, they are residential colleges. Uh, workers in uh, a garment shop in the Lower East Side would get a Uh, an opportunity to go live in upstate New York and spend a a few months taking classes in a residential college on subjects like labor economics, uh, um, the theory of socialism, Marxian socialism, uh, you know, collective bargaining, uh, statistics, statistics is a big one, you know, this becomes a, a place to conserve the ideas of the, you know, that are being extinguished in the halls of power, but
1: will you know clearly have an audience and 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 will uh, return these institutions they're largely sunset by the end of the 20s they have such an outsized influence in social movement history for the on like onwards in the 20th century in the us you know aj musty runs Brookwood School in 1919. You'll probably know him now as a kind of leading peace activist that you know was an important political mentor to Bayard Rustin, who's the architect of the kind of March on Washington in 63. Uh, Highlander Folk School's impact on the kind of civil rights movement is also pretty well known and renowned. Um, so it's funny to see even some of these like something like Brookwood, which has a relatively aborted history at least the AFL's relationship to it, which ends in 1928, um, still kind of plant seeds which which grow for for decades on.
4: A similar institution is something called the Workers' Health Bureau, uh, which is founded in 1920 and it's basically an effort to build on the progressive era legacy of industrial hygiene, as they called it, to, you know, study occupational hazard, what we would now call occupational hazard. And to uh it's affiliated with the left wing of the labor movement and across a bunch of the 20s, attempts to kind of similarly bring forward a progressive era tradition, right? That public health being one of the main interests of the progressive era. And I I bring that up just to say that I think if you look at a few of these different kinds of institutions, we can see an interesting thing happening in the 1920s, which is the legacy of progressive era cross-class cooperation involving in particular, particular forms of scientific expertise, undergoing some process of, we might say radicalization, or at least being put to work more squarely for the labor movement, as opposed to the kind of balancing act that they were trying to do in the actual progressive era. Uh, And this even includes something called the Taylor Society, which is the organization uh, that kind of inherits the legacy of Frederick Taylor, the founder of scientific management, generally treated as a kind of villain in labor history, right, for degrading work. Um, but by the twenties, the Taylor Society is really interested in these kinds of questions about how productivity might actually kind of improve life and working conditions for workers, and how it might kind of be paired in some way with working class power, um, and you know union unionization, and even some vision of kind of socialism potentially. Right? They see socialism as a kind of scientific enterprise. The question
2: of the workers' consent enters into management science.
4: Exactly exactly and a lot of these questions in particular circulate through and around the needle trades and in particular the amalgamated the men's clothing workers union which becomes really interested in trying to figure out how public health questions can be incorporated into working class power and, you know there's a lot of health issues in in garment garment shops how scientific management can be incorporated into working class power and how uh because in then in the garment industry, part of what the union does is stabilize the industry as a whole, right, because of its ultra-competitive conditions. We talked about this in the last episode. There's some sense that uh, a kind of scientific view might give a mutually beneficial situation to labor and capital if labor asserts itself more, uh, right? That's a kind, of, it's a kind of inversion of the political meaning of expertise in that, and that. Has been described by labor historians as the dress rehearsal for the New deal, right the idea that this kind of alliance of experts and workers can build power for workers and establish a kind of new equilibrium between labor and capital
0: and it 's interesting to know that at the same time um, and and partly overlapping, although only partly uh, as this alliance between experts and workers, uh, some of these labor colleges are also the sites for an alliance between uh, or at least a flirtation. Uh, between workers and, and bohemians and intellectuals and artists, right? People who are, um, you know, kind of famously in another sphere of cultural history, famously unhappy with the civilization of America in the 1920s and its, its crassness, its materialism. Um, and so, you know, you see a lot of this exemplified in the movement for the defense of Saquon Vanzetti, uh, who are arrested as part of the 1919 uh, repression that we've talked about, but aren't executed until 1927. Um, And in that movement of sort of writers and intellectuals for people like Saquon Vanzetti, you see the beginning of something that will take on much more importance in the 1930s, uh, which is this alliance between people with a kind of romantic creative uh, critique of capitalism and the new immigrant working class, uh, which is in the factories.
1: Yeah, one of the, I think, best kind of institutional distillations of that kind of meeting between the kind of Bohemian subculture and uh, some of these kind of like labor radicalism was the Dill Pickle Club uh, based in Chicago. And William Z. E. Foster uh, was a kind of frequent kind of rub shoulders in a kind of milieu which, you know, gave equal attention to kind of like free love and, you know, kind of like fair wages. Uh you know it that kind of it might be worth talking a little bit about foster and the communist party also before we conclude because the emergence of the communist party as a kind of radical pole the kind of like left edge of the american political scene and foster again as a kind of rising figure on the in the kind of world of left labor is another important development for the 1920s You know, Foster had himself kind of gone through a series of important political kind of transformations, Uh, you know, starting out as a kind of syndicalist, becoming a wobbly, eventually in the aftermath of Chicago and the steel strike, turning to kind of communism, uh, both as an organizational vehicle, but also as his own kind of like personal political kind of orientation. It, It was a kind of match which worked. Foster had long been frustrated with a number of kind of radicals in the labor movement, because their interest in developing their own independent revolutionary unions. Foster increasingly saw this as a strategic dead end, that there were kind of real kind of pockets of untapped radicalism that already organized American workers, like kind of trapped in AFL unions, really could be unlocked if someone kind of pursued a strategy of joining those unions of doing what he called boring from within to kind of like link up with those kind of untapped radical currents in the already organized working class. It's, it's a kind of strategy which will sound familiar to those who are on the socialist left today or in the labor movement. It sounds an awful lot like what we talk about is the rank and file strategy uh, or a certain version of the rank and file strategy that we talk about in DSA pretty frequently. Foster was really advocating for that, and he found a kind of natural home uh, and a number of eager kind of radicals as well as institutional resources to pursue such a strategy in the Communist Party, which is this kind of wrestling with its own debates in this kind of revolutionary period after October uh, through the German revolutions, You know, has a series of polemics about how should revolutionaries and communists relate to the existing kind of labor movement? And the question is far from settled, but is certainly treated as settled uh, with a po- like a polemic that Lenin writes about left-wing communism and infantile disorder, which really prescribes that communists need to kind of like work within the extant labor movement. Um, Foster sees his own views kind of reflected here, joins the CP and uses the CP as a perch to really kind of pursue his own, the kind of distinct strategy we just described in, in terms of boring from within. The main organizational vehicle for that becomes the trade union education league. Um the trade union education league is, Um, Not its own union. It's not a dual union. It's not even a membership organization. And it's really careful not to do, like, not to present itself as such, because, you know, Foster really doesn't want to burn necessarily all of his relationships that he's been kind of cultivating over the years with leading figures of the AFL. He still thinks he can maybe kind of turn them to a kind of much more kind of left wing politics. But the Trade Union Education League provides a range of pamphlets and resources to like help rank and file activists within the AFL. Think about how they can take control of their unions, how they can adopt more militant union practices. And it also becomes a kind of organization which can kind of coordinate basically communists trying to contest and run unions in a different kind of way. A lot of their efforts are unsuccessful. They're really successful with the kind of like fur union. uh, I think that some historians describe them as furries, which has a pretty different political valence uh, now. Uh, But they're particularly successful with Ben Gold in New York. Uh, They lead a really successful strike, I want to say in 1926. um, And they kind of, it it spreads to Philadelphia and Baltimore and across the Eastern seaboard in 27. And and
2: while they're excluded from the uh, work of the AFL's Worker Education Bureau, the faculty of Brookwood do mingle with the, with the education league. And, and, you know, there's a clear understanding of, of some shared project here of, you know, uh, preparing American workers for the task of reconstructing their society, which is so clearly in, in the aftermath of world war one, uh, in need of reconstruction. Yeah.
4: And, you know, what we were talking about a moment ago in terms of the kind of interesting relationship between knowledge and organization or kind of like experts and intellectuals and workers is replicated on the left in a certain form here too, right? There's the John Reed clubs, which were formed in the aftermath of the Russian revolution, named after John Reed, the great uh, socialist journalist and writer who became one of the classic observers of the Russian revolution, ultimately died in Russia, is buried in the walls of the Kremlin. And, you know, those become kind of a part of the world of radical popular education, the kind of involves both the kind of Bohemian middle class people and the working-class radicals the kind of free love and workers power kind of mix right it's, it's really sort of it's small but potent in important ways by the late the late 20s and I think especially then in the late 20s when the Communist Party takes a kind of further left turn in its international policy in the period called the third period right that has really important ramifications for what these kind of clusters around these kind of different groups are able to do and the kinds of struggles that they're able to launch.
1: One last thing we should maybe just say about the communist party. And, you know, Gabe, I think pointed to this here, it's just like, they really are, it is really pretty nascent in this period that a lot of their kind of efforts at first to do this boring from within doesn't necessarily bear a lot of fruit, um, but it does kind of create the nuclei, which are later activated in the 1930s. And um, and become kind of core parts of what becomes both radical alternatives to the AFL in the early 30s and later can even become part of, you know, successful organizing committees and even leadership of CIO unions uh, kind of later on. You know, the boring from within strategy, which meshed so well with Foster's own approach, was eventually abandoned, much to Foster's own kind of, you know, he had a pretty tortured relationship to the zigzags of the party line. But like as the kind of 20s leans on, this is imagined as a period of the 20s, the mid-20s are imagined as a period of the stabilization of capitalist relationships, the need for revolutionary forces to not necessarily ghettoize themselves, that they need to kind of work and kind of broad united fronts of other kind of working class and left groups, which is why the strategy of linking up with the extant labor movement makes so much sense to them as a kind of policy in the world of labor um, and workplace organization, that kind of falls by the wayside in the kind of eve of the Great Depression. You know, the Communist Party is somewhat ineffectual in the United States, in part because it's so racked by internal factional battles that the USSR and the Comintern have to keep intervening in. But it, as there's, there's a kind of period of stabilization that comes with Stalin's ascent in the USSR and... Uh, The kind of um, victory of his line also in kind of the common turn and international kind of communist movement. And the line that he arrives at in 28 is one of the third period. So if there's a first revolutionary period around represented by the October Revolution and that kind of crest of struggles across Europe and the colonized world, there's a period of stabilization in the 20s. The third period is supposed to be the rebirth of a kind of revolutionary era. And it was time for revolutionaries to distinguish themselves from other reformist elements and develop their own organizations. And so boring from within is abandoned. And the calls for communists to develop their own independent red unions uh, is a kind of torch that, that gets taken up. That mostly is occurring outside of the scope of this episode. But maybe it's worth talking about a place like Estonia really quick.
4: Sure. So Gastonia is uh, North Carolina, Gastonia, North Carolina. It's a place where I think for many people, it's hard to imagine something like this happening now. It's a Piedmont, uh, it's near Charlotte. And, you know, the textile industry is the main industry of the Southern Piedmont from Southern Virginia all the way down to Alabama. Over several decades, capital has been flowing out of textiles in New England, which has been their historical center, and into the low-wage South uh, it's a kind of classic capital flight. The textile industry is not very healthy, basically, um, across much of the 1920s. And it's not an industry that is, you know, uh, participating very successfully in uh, expanding parts of the economy. And, and so there is there is kind of ongoing simmering conflict in textiles, as in a number of other industries kind of across the period.
1: We should say a little bit about the strikes itself. You know, there were only 30,000 textile workers in the union by the time of the strike, although there were you know over a million, over a million, 100,000 workers employed in textile as a whole. It's only 3% of the industry that's that's really unionized. Uh, and so the AFL, uh, at the point when it's trying to come down and support the strike, which is already kind of kicked off by the kind of grassroots of the kind of workers in those kind of factories, it's, it's pretty ill-equipped um, to actually support the strike. And at the first stirrings of repression, they very quickly run out of town. Um, There's an injunction, which kind of comes from the court after some 500 young women who are kind of like working in the mills first walk out over both the pace of work and uh, over the kind of desperately low wages that they were kind of receiving. Um, A local court fitting a theme of much of the decade of the 1920s, uh, puts the kind of picket in an injunction. And they quickly arrest, you know, 1,250 workers. Um, I don't even know how they had enough like bunkhouse beds for for all the people they ended up tossing behind bars. And, you know, very quickly, deputy sheriffs are arriving on the scene, the National Guard and state guards are kind of arriving on the scene uh, to try to kind of force the workers um, back into the picket lines. The communists, step into the breach in the absence of the AFL as the AFL tucks its tail between its legs and kind of denounces the strike, encourages workers to kind of return to the mills, uh, the communists end up kind of arriving. You know, this,
4: this is an important theme in the textile industry that will reoccur in the 30s and beyond, in fact, which is that um, the base of the AFL textile union, the UTW, is in New England. And it's it's a small base, they don't have much of the industry organized, but it's in New England. The members are largely Catholic, immigrant, children of immigrants. The workers at Gastonia are Protestant, quote, native born, often Pentecostal even or something like this. And so there is a significant cultural and ethnic divide between the geographical halves of the union. It's not the only reason the AFL can't get anywhere, but it's a significant one.
1: Well, the AFL's lack of success, you know, like paves the way for communists to, to try to try their hand on it with their kind of new red unions, not the United Textile Workers, the UTW, but the National Textile Workers, the NTW. And they come with that union with the whole kind of nascent party apparatus at its disposal, you know, reporters from the Daily Worker, a number of paid organizers uh, supporting auxiliary forces. Of tool, the Workers' International Relief, and they provide quite articulate, quite organizationally savvy support to these textile workers, which are otherwise kind of bereft of, of a lot of kind of formal organization outside of the county.
4: And one name worth saying here, one of the most famous names to come out of this episode is Fred Beale. Fred Beale himself grew up in an immigrant working class family in Lawrence, Massachusetts site of the famous bread and roses strike an iww strike he had been in the iww i believe and like many of the kind of leading organizational cohort uh on the ground industrial organizers in the communist party by the late 1920s had kind of made this journey from the wobblies to the red industrial unions of this period there's he's not the only one there's a whole kind of crew of them who come down as you're saying ben Although Beale will wind up being the most famous.
1: Yeah. And, you know, Beal lends so much kind of force to the strike. But the strike, you know, still faces even with this kind of like emerging communist organization kind of rooted in the plants, supported from the outside. Um, Repression does kind of continue. Relief eventually kind of runs out. The strike is broken by force. I think by mid-April of this year. They eventually can't stop the strike breakers for coming inside uh, and the relief kind of slows and as a result you know most workers end up slowly you know migrating back to the plants
4: but this this is at gastonia it's a company town as we were saying and so in some ways it resembles other kinds of company town strikes that we've talked about like at ludlow a coal strike to the ludlow massacre uh like many coal strikes in fact where workers once they're on strike they're evicted they live in a tent city Sort of near the workplace, basically, so from you know, which is sort of their uh, sort of semi-military encampment for trying to stop strikebreakers from going to work, and you know, this is the rural or semi-rural South. They're pretty armed. Yeah. And that's a central dynamic of the conflict around the strike.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, like, even as workers are returning back, the kind of like communist union is still saying that the fight is not quite over. And from their kind of new tent colony headquarters are still kind of looking for ways to disrupt the entry of scabs back into the workplace and think about new ways they can relaunch the kind of strike. It's totally intolerable to kind of like local Dixie crap political bosses and the kind of mill owners and they decide they're going to kind of um, send in a kind of like gang of thugs into the camp without a warrant with any formal legal pretense and a kind of gunfight kind of emerges gunfights were kind of frequent throughout these kind of strikes in this instance four members uh, for officers of the law four members of the kind of gang which the mob that kind of like enters the camp end up dying. Including the chief of police, right? That's right. At this point, like there's a kind of mob of the mill owners, their petty supporters, uh, members of law and order. They kind of uh, retaliate by kind of attacking the union headquarters, by ransacking it, bruising uh, and arresting a number of kind of strikers in the process. I think like law and order kind of sat out, like where it's kind of the National Guard was kind of close by watching this kind of ransacking of the union headquarters, when they did kind of arrive on the scene after the fact, they just rounded up the strikers who were still milling about, accusing them of kind of assaults on company property. No effort was ever made to kind of apprehend the culprits who had terrorized uh, the union. And in the end,
4: I mean, the strike is eventually crushed violently in this way. There's sort of these periodic spasms of violence in the process, right? As you know, the workers try to kind of guard their camp, law enforcement sort of probes and raids it with these gangs of of anti-Indian armed men. And most infamously, they, in addition to arresting Fred Beale and a number of others, there is also a kind of final moment when a pregnant woman named Ella Mae Wiggins, is, who's on strike, is shot and killed, I think in her tent,
1: I think it was actually she was in a car uh, on a truck on the way to what would be a kind of mass meeting. I mean, again, like as you said, there's these periodic kind of upsurges of mob violence. They keep terrorizing members of the union, attacking the kind of head like local southern kind of like headquarters of the CP and its affiliated organizations. And in response to this, there's 14 people in a truck on the way to a mass meeting in southern in the southern part of the county. And Ella May Wiggins is in the back of a car. She was a kind of union organizer. She was like a kind of composer of ballads, kind of like folk artist. Yeah, I wanted to say about that in regard to
4: Wiggins, that I think she's a very interesting figure, I mean, both because she becomes this sort of uh, martyred icon of the strike, right? This young pregnant woman, but uh, also because her singing, her songwriting, actually, in some ways, is the kind of militant expression of you know, what's seen as a kind of workers' folk culture, in fact, a workers' Christian folk culture, right? This is, again, this is a kind of Protestant rural South. And so, you know, I think the the musical legacy, actually, of her points to a kind of sensed opportunity, in some ways a a lost opportunity, to connect militant industrial unionism to, to forms of working class, even white, rural, evangelical working class popular culture. Uh, which is part of why she in particular I think in her music has kind of been an enduring uh, symbol of the strike and the opportunity that it seemed to point toward
3: we leave our homes in the morning we kiss our children goodbye while we slave for the bosses our children scream and cry and when we draw our money our grocery bills to pay not a cent to spend for clothing not a cent to lay away
1: I mean, why do we even talk about this if it was such an abysmal failure? It was taking place the relatively isolated group of textile workers in a kind of part of the country, which is rarely a kind of like site of a nationally significant kind of labor fight. I mean, part of the significance is it signals something which will begin to only accelerate as we enter the core period of the series, which is that a number of workers are increasingly radicalized by what's happening on the job, by uh, the kind of intensive exploitation that they're experiencing, by the speed-ups associated with work, by the kind of absence of any democratic infrastructure in um, these kind of company towns. And increasingly, they turn to and pick up and develop organizations of the radical left, of communist organizations. And communist organizers and communist politics increasingly become a kind of tribune to both their own aspirations and uh, a kind of voice for their own frustrations with the uh, conditions of life that they're forced to live under.
3: Say there, did you hear the news? Psycho worked at trimming shoes. Vanzetti was a peddling man a pushed a fish cart with his hand. Two good men a long time gone. Two good men a long time gone. Psycho Thanks
1: for listening to this episode of Fragile Juggernaut, a podcast on the meaning of the CIO. We will be releasing new episodes every other week throughout the duration of our series. Our next episode will survey the early years of the Great Depression. The interlocked crises of social reproduction kicked off, and the nascent forms of working-class fight back, from the unemployed movement and farmers organizing to grassroots industrial and municipal unionism. Here, the ideological and organizational table is set for a massive working-class offensive in the middle part of the 1930s. Fragile Juggernaut is hosted by our organizing committee. Alex Press, Andrew Elrod, Ben Maybe, Emma Teitelman, Gabriel Winant, and Tim Barker. We are produced by Alex Lewis and Jackson Roach at Row Home Productions. We are brought to you by Haymarket Books as the first Haymarket Books Originals production. Make sure to follow and share the Haymarket Originals podcast feed so that you and your comrades can be the first to know about other series-length non-fiction audio projects in the months and years ahead. To learn more about Haymarket Originals, visit haymarketbooks.org, where you'll also find thousands of indispensable radical books and other political education resources. You can also join the Haymarket Book Club, one of the best ways to support Haymarket and help fund projects like this. You can also find a link to our Patreon for Fragile Juggernaut in the show notes below. Subscribers to the podcast can get access to our newsletter, which features reading lists, further analysis, and interviews with historians and labor radicals, past and present. We need your support to pay our talented producers. So if you're still listening, throw us what cash you can at
3: patreon.com. Solidarity forever. Anarchist bastard was the name. Judge They're called he's two good men. Well, I ain't got time to tell this tale The Dixon Bulls are on my trail But I'll remember these two good men that died To show me how to live Two good men's a long time gone Two good men's a long time gone Two good men's a long time gone Left me here to sing this song All you people in Swassos Lane Sing this song and sing it plain All you folks that's coming along Jump in with me and sing this song. It's two good men a long time gone, Two good men a long time gone, Two good men a long time gone, Left me here to sing this song. Row Home Productions